When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad you're here. If I sound a little hoarse, <laughs> it's because I, uh, I'm recording this on a Tuesday and this previous weekend I went to a health advocates conference and one of the last things that we do, the the last night that we're there on Saturday night, they have an open mic night and I did not participate in the open mic night, but I definitely am a hype woman and got excited for anybody willing to put themselves out there. So I kind of lost my voice a little bit. <laughs> so hang with me. I hope you can still hear me clearly. Today we have nine questions. Let's just jump right in. Now, this first question says, Katie, can you talk more about dissociation from memories versus dissociation from emotions? Is that really a thing? I find that I use coping skills to put my trauma memories into these other people. So I remember what happened, but it's like it happened to them. So I don't feel the emotion behind the memory. Logically, I know what happened to me, but emotionally, I don't connect with it. Not more than if it happened to a friend. I'm trying to work on this with my therapist, but I've been having a hard time putting into words what I'm experiencing. Thank you for all that you do. Now, I'm going to jump to one of the comments. Someone commented and said, is this what is known as structural dissociation? And I have to be honest with you guys, I didn't know what structural dissociation was. I hadn't heard of the term, but I did some light research and digging. And there are some preliminary articles and research, meaning there is research happening in this field, but it hasn't been going on for like a crazy amount of time. So there's like a breadth of things to dig through. And um, the theory, there is still, they're still calling it a theory. And this prob they've probably been researching it for like 15 years, it looks like, but maybe a little bit longer. That's just what I could find. And essentially what structural dissociation is, is kind of, I, I struggle to understand the difference between structural dissociation and what we have called DID or dissociative identity disorder, because the theory of structural dissociation is that patients with, I think maybe this is the difference, I guess, is that patients with complex trauma or other related disorders, right, have a division of their personality into these different parts, each with its own, like, like say psycho and biological underpinnings, which really means that each of these personalities has its own like history of like trauma or not trauma or certain memories and feelings and not. So they're like essentially what I would say, like completely different people or different personalities. Now, I think that's very similar to what I would call DID. So that again, I'm just learning about this right along with you guys. And so I just wanted to put that in there because someone said, is that what's known as it? And when I read this question, I thought, 
having these trauma memories, putting them onto other people to me does sound a little bit like DID, except for the fact that I don't know if the person who asked this question actually does have these splits, meaning when we have DID or maybe structural dissociation, if we're calling it that, when we have DID, what happens is we have these different alters, these different quote unquote people that we become and we go in and out of them. Now, because it's dissociation, we might not have memory of doing these switches. So I don't really know if you've found yourself having these huge lapses in memory or someone, you know, I don't know, someone's saying that you were very different one time or another, or if you're aware. some Everybody's different, so I don't want to assume anything with this. But because I don't know if you actually go in to become these other quote-unquote people, if it's DID or not. Because you said you remember what happened, but it's like it happened to them. And I, I'd want to know a little bit more about them and if that's like another, like an altar of yours. And do you ever... I don't know, do you ever find yourself um, acting as that other person, these these people? Um, do you act as them ever? Or because, so, okay, just so you guys can see my the way my brain is working, that when she talked about dissociation first, the person asking this question, memories and dissociation, I immediately, especially putting it onto other people, was like, oh, this could be DID. Or, because as a therapist, I feel like a lot of our job is just thinking of all the potential options and then slowly ruling them in or out. So if it's not DID, let's say the person who asks this question is like, no, I never become these people. It's more just like I put it on to this other like part of myself. Like, oh, that happened to her at this other time, Right. I would call that either compartmentalizing or potentially kind of what we call externalization. And externalization is can be really helpful. It's the reason that I tell a lot of my eating disorder patients to give their eating disorder a name, a different name, because if we give that other, you know, part of us, this like voice in our head, a different name, it makes it easier to be like, I don't want that in my life anymore. Versus if it's, we find it becoming part of us, then how are we supposed to, it can be more difficult, right? To be like, I don't want to, I don't want me to be here anymore. It can be really disheartening and not very therapeutic. So we use externalization in that way. And I wonder if this is you doing it that way, or by putting it on these quote unquote other people, are we just kind of stuffing it down? Is this like a, a defense mechanism or a coping skill? We're you know, like compartmentalizing. Like I had this patient, I've talked about this in the past, where she would talk about intensely stressful events and super traumatizing things that happened. And she said that she imagined herself taking this trauma or this stressful event and putting it in like a very detailed bottle, putting a cork in the top and then putting it on this huge shelf that she had created in her mind. And she would like file it away. And it was like this apothecary wall from the ways that she described it. And so we can sometimes do that too, where we're like, I don't have the tools to manage or understand this. I'm going to tuck this away over here and try to forget about it, right? So we can do that as well. So I guess I have a couple of questions with regard to that. But to answer your first part of the question where you said dissociation from memories and dissociation from emotions, dissociation happens for all sorts of reasons. Essentially, we can dissociate from anything when we become overwhelmed and our nervous system feel is thrown into our stress response, otherwise known as fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, when that happens, then 
our brain kind of like pulls the ripcord on reality sometimes because like, I don't have the tools to cope with all of this. This is all just too much. And whether we're aware of it or not, sometimes our brain just like whoop, pulls us out from ourself so we can feel like we're watching ourselves do something or from environment. Now with the case with this person talking about memories or emotions, I would I would argue that emotions are in the moment and more about removal from self and memories are more from environment. It's a bigger thing. We're removing ourselves farther from what's happening. Now, I'm not saying one is more intense than the other. I just believe that depending on what we need, dissociation will psychologically or neurologically remove us from that thing that is causing the overwhelm. So I think like to answer your question in short form, we can dissociate from memories or emotions or both just depending on what we need. The goal of dissociation is to get us out of our present, our now, our conscious consciousness so that we can sustain and, and survive. Does that make sense? I hope so. And again, I have a couple more questions to better understand who these other people are. And the fact that you like disconnected yourself from it to me doesn't mean it's necessarily just like part of the dissociation. That emotional disconnection can also be due to trauma. A lot of us have a, a tough time connecting because frankly, it's uncomfortable to feel everything a lot of the time. So we're like, fuck that. We cut it off, right? Now there was a comment on this and it said, hi, if this is related, I noticed that I can detach my emotional self when it has to do with painful events. Like for example, I can be calculated and detached if I'm talking about putting down my pet because of sickness and manage to ask hard questions without feeling emotional. What should we call this? I think this, unless we feel spaced out and we like, whoop, we have no memory of what took place, it's not dissociation. I think that's an easy way to kind of is it or isn't it dissociation almost always messes with our memory and we will kind of feel ourselves like space out. I don't know if when it's happened to me, I don't know if I really feel like the pull away. Like some people experience like they feel like the pull away and they feel it happening. The couple of times in my life when it's occurred, I find myself like freezing. Like I feel frozen and I'm kind of like, boo. like, you know, when you feel like your brain's just shut off that like flat line, that's how it feels to me. Now it might feel different to you, but then when I try to recall what just took place, I can't, or it's like really splotchy. I'm like, oh, I remember kind of the start of it. And that's probably before I like tapped out. And then it's like nothing. I might remember the overall feeling or I might just remember the, the outcome, right? So Anyways, um, I think detaching from your emotional self when you have to like get through something, I think that's what I would call, it's actually an okay tool to have in our toolbox. We don't want to use it all the time as long because the goal is that we're able to reattach to that, right? But in the moment, I call that a back burner technique. It's essentially our ability to compartmentalize when needed. Like I can't fall apart right now. I need to get you know, this stuff across. I have to ask questions. I need to understand this is important. I can't cry, um, but I will cry later, right? So we, we put it back burner, that emotional response for a minute, or we compartmentalize. Can't deal with that right now, Ooh, but I will. We get through something without emotion or without falling apart, and then we fall apart. That's just, honestly, it's healthy, adaptive coping, like I said, it should be short-lived. This shouldn't be something that we do for like, you know, day after day after day. But when we're going through really stressful, tough times, it's like when my dad passed away, I remember 
um, going with my mom to the funeral home and like being able to ask questions and also get angry because that was my role at the time. <laughs> but I could be okay and I didn't really cry. I could hold it together to ask those questions. And I don't think that's so much as dis- of dissociation as it was me just like trying to like just get through it and make sure that, you know, we, we knew what was taking place and we were aware and we made the decisions we needed to. Does that make sense? Okay, so I call it more compartmentalization or backburnering. Another person says, as an add-on, as I heal, I'm in therapy, I'm beginning to see things differently. I'm understanding some of the stuff that I went through was in fact sexual abuse. I still hate those words. But after opening up about some new memories to my therapist, it seems as, um, as if I am struggling with it so much more. That's normal. Questions like, am I making this up? Even with concrete evidence that it did happen. Why now? Why am I remembering this now? I'm still in a pretty close relationship with one of the people that took advantage of me. When I asked my therapist why, why am I just remembering and dealing with something from 15 years ago? I'm 40 years old now. She said, because you are the dis- dissociation queen, I didn't even realize I had these memories locked away. I have detailed memories of almost all of my life. Even I even remember details about a family trip we took when I was two. Wow. So my question is, how do I ease the blow of coming out of these dissociative episodes? This one kicked me flat on my back for weeks because of the realization of re-victimization. Yeah, I'm still not sure if I'm over it. I find myself fearing what else my mind might be hiding from me. Any help to move forward in this healing journey? I have a couple of words of advice. um, It's normal to have those questions like, am I making this up? And why am I remembering this now? I think overall and not to like sim- oversimplify it because I know these are very complex feelings, but I find that overall we have that response because of the shame, guilt, and embarrassment that's associated or kind of intrinsically connected to trauma, meaning something's wrong with me. I must have done something to cause this. I can't believe I haven't talked about this yet. Why am I just remembering it right? You can see how those shame, guilt, and embarrassment can swirl around us and make us think that we're making it up or it's not quite as bad or all the things that we think. Not to mention the fact that if this is the first time we're starting to talk about it, we have a lot to dig through. And that can be very complicated and overwhelming at times. And we can feel like our emotions or our thoughts about something kind of get all jumbled and it can be difficult to even make sense of it, right? And so because it can be so complicated, confusing, and it's hard to make sense of it, we can be like, "Uh, this can't be right, right? Of course, even though it is, it can make it even more difficult for us to acknowledge that what happened was abuse, right? So there's that component. But then my advice really to you is to be kind to yourself. This is a very difficult process. What you're doing is hard work. I don't think anyone out there would say, oh yeah, my trauma work and therapy. What a breeze. No one would say that. It's horrible. It's hard, but it does get better and you can heal and your your world can get better, better and your life can get better. It's totally worth it. But when you're in the thick of it, it's difficult. It, it's it's hard. It's It can be all consuming. It can be overwhelming. And so we're going to need to beef up some of your grounding techniques and some of your coping skills. And what I mean by grounding techniques are things that can help you stay present so you don't pull away and like pull the ripcord on reality while doing this work because we all know that when we're dissociated we can't actually do the trauma work that we need to so we're going to need to have some grounding techniques that could be like 
changing the temperature, right? Cold water on the face, ice in the hands, counting colors, how many things in the room are black, brown, blue, whatever. Um, doing the ABCs, what in the room starts with an A, with a B, with a C. We can stomp our feet. We can use silly putty fidget toys. We can ask someone for a touch on the back or whatever feels okay if it does. Those are just a few. We're going to have to try them. We're going to figure out what works for us. And then when it comes to coping skills, because you said this one kicked you flat on your back for a few weeks, we need to have some ways for you to, number one, process it what you went through. This could be through journaling, talking to a friend, talking to your therapist and having like a um, like a rehash or uh, better yet, you can tell your therapist, hey, I've been having a really hard time like doing this. Could we set aside an extra 10 minutes at the end of the session for just kind of the like process of it, like coming out of it so I can leave feeling okay when you do that? Um, this could be, you know, uh, taking care of ourselves, like basic self-care stuff. And when I say self-care, I don't mean expensive things. I mean like making sure you're showering, you're eating regularly, drinking enough water, getting enough sleep, taking your medicine as prescribed, all that stuff. Those are all kind of ways that we can help beef up ourselves and our resilience so that when it tries to kick us on our ass, we can fight back a little more. Or if it does kick us on our ass, we're only down for a couple of days and we're back at it. Um, I think all of that will really help because it is tricky. It is difficult. It is hard to acknowledge and accept and validate our trauma experiences. Just know you're not alone and it does get better, okay? So hang in there. And that's it. The last thing was about structural dissociation. And I feel like I talked about that, even though, like I said, I'm learning about it too. So it's very new to me. And I almost feel bad that I hadn't heard of this term before, but you know, I'm learning and it's, it's like, there's so much in the psychological research realm. And that's just one of the things I haven't read about. So I hope that answered your questions. If you have any follow-ups, you let me know, but let's move on to question number two. And this question says, hey, Katie, my maladaptive response to developmental trauma, like abandonment, emotional abuse, and neglect, has been to completely isolate myself from everyone to the point where I only feel known to my therapist of one year. Relationships are incredibly triggering for me, so I often avoid them if I can. If I have to be with people, I fawn, meaning super people, please and or mask, keeping everyone at arm's length at all times. But this just perpetuates the cycle of being isolated and alone. My question is, how does one go about starting to tackle this self-isolation brought on by trauma? I find it triggering to be alone, but being with people triggers me too, both resulting in intentional emotional flashbacks. I feel stuck. I am trying to bite off Oh, am I trying to bite off more than I can chew? Do I need to resolve the underlying trauma first to lessen the triggers of being with people? I hope this all makes sense and many thanks for your podcasts every week. Of course, of course. Great question. You're not alone. Feeling triggered and overwhelmed so much so that we don't want to be out in the world is incredibly common. Um, I've had a ton of patients who are even that way with uh, who have BPD or borderline personality disorder because the fear of abandonment is so intense that we would prefer to just not have any relationships where someone can leave us. And either way, we end up feeling isolated and alone. And that, and here's just, just so that you can understand, being isolated and alone wears down our resilience even more and makes us more vulnerable to our hypervigilance and our emotions. So we're going to need to get you reconnected, but we're not there yet because it's too triggering. So my homework for you is actually to find some grounding techniques and coping skills that work for you. Just like I said about the question that I just answered, 
we're going to have to beef those things up. You know, we're going to need more coping skills and more grounding techniques so that we don't get so triggered and we don't find ourselves overwhelmed. Now, the thing that the reason this is the first step is because if we can't stay present and if we don't feel safe engaging, then we can't improve anything, right? So it's not like, yes, we have to keep pushing through and we have to keep doing this. No. Right now we need to beef up ways to calm our system down. So like if you know, like we can do some imagination too. Like imagine that in a week you have to go to an event. How could we prepare you? What are some coping skills that would work? Is it bringing a friend that we know well or a close, you know, close person to us, like a family member or something that that knows about it? Could we bring someone with us? Does that help? Can we step away, go to the bathroom for a bit or offer to go get drinks for people so that we get a break and we're like by ourselves and we can like, we can um, even ask the bartender for a cup of ice and put the, you know, the ice up against our head or something like that. We can do any number of things, right? We can do these things to help us in the moment but we're going to have to prepare ahead so we can get to that moment. Because once we build up our coping skills, our grounding techniques, the next step will be some exposure therapy. So that might be that we imagine ourselves doing things and we use the coping skills to calm ourselves down. Then we go you know, slowly towards the things that are triggering or overwhelming and we use our coping skills to calm down. Essentially what, and I have a video about exposure therapy if you want to hear more specifics, but essentially what we're doing is we're trying to trigger ourselves on purpose, which I know you're like, why the hell would we do that? But we're trying to trigger ourselves on purpose so we can use our tools, calm ourselves down, and slowly but surely prove to our brain and our nervous system that that thing that we thought was so scary and so overwhelming really isn't. But because we've been proving to ourselves by maybe having intense emotional flashbacks like this person had said, or like panic attacks or complete dissociation meltdowns, if we've been inter- like interacting socially and then having that bad response, our brain is like, that's not safe for us. If we do that, we get overwhelmed. And so we've proven it to be true that way. And we have to like unprove it or disprove that. And so slowly but surely using our coping skills and our grounding techniques, once we know them well, we feel like we can use them anytime, all the time. Then we want to re-engage little by little, step by step, and use those things to calm ourselves down. And that is how we'll come out of this. Because you're not alone in feeling like this. So many of my traumatized patients will experience, I I call this hypervigilance. Like you just feel so uncomfortable, so on edge being out in public and always afraid that we're going to have something happen. And then if we are triggered, we, you know, can't, can't cope. It's incredibly common, but if we beef up those things, we can get you to a place where you feel better and you're able to re-engage with life in a way that feels good for you. Again, not everyone has to be super social, but I want you to feel safe and okay going into work, going out to eat with friends, um, going to a party that someone's throwing. Like, I want you to feel good doing all of those things. There was a comment on this. I don't know if it fits into the conversation, but do you have any tips on perfectionism as a trauma response or a coping mechanism? I cannot even do anything because I have to study, for example, to be perfect in school. I definitely use use it to ignore my feelings, but also to find validation. My family was emotionally neglectful and only praised me when I had great grades. Interesting. So that's the only way you know how to get love and support. Now, When it comes to perfectionism as a trauma response, I would put that in the bucket of fawning. Remember, fawning is extreme people pleasing. And the 
to be truthful, again, it's going to be exposure therapy, but it's going to look a little different. So exposure therapy for you would be to do something half-assed on purpose and know that I'm telling you, if you did it perfectly, it's actually wrong. I give you zero points. But if you do it imperfectly, even though it's on purpose, then you get 100%. I give you A+. We're going to have to slowly, again, retrain ourselves to not think that if it's not perfect, it's not worth it, or it's not, then we're not worthy. Because you've attached perfectionism to to your ability to feel and be accepted, to feel loved and to be accepted and feel like you're enough. And we have to untangle that. And that's going to take some trauma work in therapy, talking about it, processing that emotional neglect and the fact that you only got attention, you know, when this happened, we're going to have to work through that with our therapist, but all the while challenging ourselves to not give in to that urge to be perfect. Because nobody's perfect and that will essentially, you know, drive you mad slowly but surely, as I'm sure you're feeling. However, going back to the kind of fawn response that I believe this is tied to, I am curious and I have, I'd have questions. If you were my patient, I'd have questions like, I wonder if you feel okay saying no to someone when they ask you to do something. Do you find yourself people pleasing? Is that part of it as well? Or because it's possible I'm wrong in that front, or is it just that you feel that if you don't do things perfectly, you're not worthy of love? Therefore, in order to earn, quote unquote, earn the love, you know, we have to do it perfectly. Like, you know, you'd have to let me know where it's coming from. And again, the homework is to actually just start doing things imperfectly on purpose. And then we can go back to what I talked about, coping skills and things like that. We're going to need those to calm us down when we do that, if that makes sense. Okay, I hope that helps. Let's move on to question number three. This question says, hey there, why do people with mental illness sometimes compare their struggles to each other like a competition? Good question. I've had conversations in inpatient and out in the world where people list how many meds they've tried or are currently taking or how many times they've been hospitalized, how many diagnoses they have, etc. Is there a reason we do this? Sometimes I feel like I don't have the right to be struggling if I don't have a higher number. I hope this makes sense. Thanks. Yes, this 100% makes sense. And I find oddly enough that mo- this this is this doesn't apply to all mental illnesses. I'm not going to call out the ones that I don't find it happening as often, but I find it does happen to the majority of them. I believe the reason that we feel competitive is because of the lack of validation that we give ourselves and acceptance. We're so quick because mental illnesses aren't something that you can see, right? I can't tangent. It's not like a broken leg where you're like, oh my God, the bone is coming out of your skin. You clearly broke your leg. Or, oh my gosh, you have cancer. Here are the scans that show it, right? Even though technically we can do like fMRIs and I don't know if a CAT scan shows. I think it's the fMRIs, but I could be wrong. It might be CAT scans that show how brains look different, right? So like if you scan my brain, you scan somebody um, else's, they're going to look different and they can show like depression in one brain versus a non-depressed brain. You can see the difference. So technically you can have a scan and you can't see it, but you know, I think that it's because we can't see it and it's often stigmatized, invalidated, minimized. That's why we compete because in a way, I believe that we have internalized this, like it's not real, you can't see it, I'm making it up. We've internalized those false beliefs and now we feel like in order to get help or to be worthy of help, we have to like beat out other people for it. I think that's where it comes from. Now that is not taken into consideration things, especially like eating disorders and self-injury. 
I believe that eating disorders and self-injury tend to have this competitive nature about them because of the nature of those mental illnesses. Meaning, like let's just take eating disorders, for example, my patients with eating disorders often feel like that's the only thing that makes them different or important, or it's the only thing they're good at. I've had a ton of patients feel that way. Therefore, when someone else is engaging in similar behavior, you're like, this is my thing. Who the fuck are you? Like our eating disorder gets angry because we're like, this is what makes me unique. This is what makes me lovable. This is what makes me, you know, this is the only thing I'm good at. We have all of those false beliefs around what our eating disorder says about us. And you could just replace eating disorder with self-injury and other things. But we're like, no, 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 this is my thing. And I think that that's part of the reason why what I was talking about earlier, that externalization component where we're like, we give it a different name. We talk about it as, as if it's something, some not just something else, but someone else. And doing that gives us a little distance and it hopefully lessens our urge to compete because it's not us. It's, you know, it's this thing that we don't like, right? And so I believe it's it's that that causes this. I would love to hear your perspectives and what you, you all think about this because it is an interesting thing. You never hear people, although I might argue that I have had some people in my life who've had something like cancer, let's say, and- not that they one up each other, but kind of in the same way that mental people with mental illness will be like, oh, well, you know, I've been in treatment five times. And somebody be like, I've had cancer relapse seven times. Like people do, I think, one up each other sometimes. And I, I believe, and this is just maybe the therapist in me, but I still believe it comes from that root of like, I'm not good enough on my own, or I'm not deserving of this care or I'm not worthy, you know, it can all come out of that and where we feel like in order for me to be having the hard time that I'm having, because I'm not allowing myself to just have that hard time and and accept it, um, I have to be the worst. I have to be the worst that there is in order to be doing bad enough to get help. Does that make sense? Like in order for me to feel like the help that I'm receiving is warranted or that I'm deserving of this kind of support. And I think we do it a lot because of the way that that we talk to each other about things and the way that we think about things. We often put ourselves down and be like, you're overreacting, you're making this into a bigger deal than it is, right? All that minimization, invalidation. Um, we compete with each other because we can feel like, you know, we already aren't deserving enough. And if we hear that you're having a harder time, it only pushes on that, like pushes that button. And so we can kind of lash out with that competitive nature. Does that make sense? I hope so. Now, there was a comment on this that said, exactly. Sometimes I wonder why we do this. Like, don't we know how triggering this can be? It's as if trigger warnings are the least regarded by those of us who have struggled with our mental health. Um, as people discuss what pills they've taken or how much or how close they were to dying, et cetera. And to be fair, the longer I've been in this space, the less I care for trigger warnings too and actively seek out to learn from other people's experiences. For me, a part of it could be finally feeling like I'm part of a community, even if we're all struggling. I don't love where I'm possibly heading to, but I just can't seem to stop. I added that in because I just really liked the way that that person verbalized it. Like, you know, wanting to seek out to learn from other people's experiences. You know, it's like, 
I really do think that the community piece is key and important and vital. And I think that connection is actually really healing. However, I do believe we need to, as a community, be aware of this and say, and that's kind of why I don't do number talk. I mean, it's it's mainly around eating disorders and self-injuries and just things, even suicide attempts that could be, uh, could cause that, could bring that out in someone else. Um, but I think sometimes just acknowledging that urge, like I wanted to compete, but uh, you know, even just saying it to yourself, I want to compete with this person because if it seems like they have it worse, but I know that everybody's battle is just as valid and I am just as, as deserving of help as anybody else. You know, like I've said this before in the past, like pain and suffering, unfortunately, is not like pie. Like me taking a slice out of this pie of pain doesn't take it from anybody else. There's plenty of pie to go around. And I don't know why I just like that analogy because I can like visualize, you know, like as they're dishing up like food of any kind, because it's like a thing that like goes away, right? But it's almost, it, it doesn't go away. There's no, it's unlimited, unfortunately. And so don't think that anybody else having some means that you can't also. Okay. And I don't know, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts too. Those are just my hypotheses about it. With that, let's move on to question number four. This question says, hi, Katie, I'm in counseling and something we have covered is getting a better handle on who I actually am rather than being defined by my mental illness. In my case, depression and anxiety. I like this. It's like that externalization and working on your identity. One exercise is writing down what traits I have and what is really important to me. I find this a difficult process. It's hard for me, hard to really believe in the results. Do you have any suggestions or exercises for this process? I do. It feels important to progress and I don't want to give up on it. Also, I'd like to say that I'm grateful for your channel and your encouragement to discuss and understand mental health matters. Of course, I'm so glad I can be here. Now, I have encouraged a lot of my patients and viewers over the years to do this exact work and I've always gotten the response that you are giving that it's super difficult and you don't know what to come up with. How do I know what's important to me? I usually give in to other people, do what they want. That's easier, right? So what I encourage is to look, there's two things. Number one, look back on past experiences and consider like, like what about your last vacation or your last trip or the last time you hung out with friends or family? Consider that. And I want you to go through in detail the things that you did, the things that you ate, the things that you drank, the uh, maybe the activities you participated in, the way people spoke to you, what you wore, how that felt on your body. Like as much of the things that I just mentioned, you're able to remember and tap into. I want you to try to do that for past experiences. And I want you to, as you go through those questions, you know, like what you're wearing, what you're eating, what you did, I want you to ask yourself, did I feel excited about that? Was it enjoyable? Did I dread it and want it to be over? There's no judgment here. And if you don't have the answer, there's no judgment either. So this is the first and we have another. But I find that to be very helpful because it's not in the moment. And we can sometimes look back with like clear view and see then like, yeah, you know, I actually don't really like potato salad. My grandma just always makes it. And it's for some reason she thinks everybody likes it, but I don't. Or you know, I don't really like hiking. It's just like walking, but you're outside and I find it really boring. I'd rather be riding a bike, right? Like I'd like you to just kind of consider those things. Or, you know, my mom always makes this, but it's too spicy. I don't really think I like spicy food. 
I don't know. Those it sounds silly, but those are just the the start, like the start of getting to know ourselves and recognizing maybe what we like and don't like. And that will help us find out slowly but surely, no rush, who we are. And also I want to throw in the caveat that we're always changing and growing as growing as humans. And as we we can change our perspective. You can not like spicy food and like spicy food. All of a sudden decide you do like hiking. It's fine. You can pivot. You can change. You can learn more about yourself and then change some of those things. It's not set in stone. This is definitely like a living, breathing document. But hopefully that helps you kind of figure out a little bit about yourself. Now, I know you're like, but the Katie, she said traits and what's really important to me. We have to start farther back, I find. Because when I start with like traits and what's important, those are too heavy. Those are big things. Instead, we have to start with the little things that we like and don't like. And that then we can take and be like, okay, well, I find out, or I find through my like personal research, right? We're being a detective about ourselves and our experience. I notice that I tend to like these things, these things, these things. I tend to appreciate these people. And I think it's all because, you know, loyalty is important to me or honesty or consistency because I was emotionally neglected. No one ever really showed up for me. You know, but we can't get there if we don't start first with the stuff that I talked about. It sounds silly, but it's just kind of the way that I find it works. So that's one, as we go back and we look into things and we see what we like and don't like. And the second, and in my experience, what my patients had the harder time doing, but had the best time doing it once they got going, is to try a bunch of things and also, okay, so we're gonna try a bunch of things. Actually, I just come up, thought of th- a third thing. Try a bunch of things. Um, try uh, different activities. And depending on your mobility level, that could mean that maybe we try uh, putting puzzles together. Maybe we go to the library and uh, check out some different books. Maybe we try going for a walk. Maybe we try hiking. Maybe we uh, maybe we try spicy food or we try a different type of food than normal, maybe sushi or Indian food or things that you haven't had before, right? Things that are maybe not normal for you. Um, maybe we try watching a different type of TV show or we finally say yes to our friends who always do these like adventures, right? We say yes and try new things. Now we can do it in the comfort of our own home and make it very as minimally stressful as possible, but just say yes and try something. Instead of going back to the same thing that feels quote unquote comfortable, challenge yourself to get out of that comfort zone. Again, for the same purpose that we're going to kind of learn more about ourselves, what we like and don't like, and that we're just, we're slowly telling ourselves the story of who we are and we have to listen, right? And my third idea, and this is something that I, I've used with just one patient, okay? So I have to be honest. My N in my study is one, but it was super successful. But they hated it. Again, it was difficult, but super rewarding. And the third is to um, ask people in our lives for what they look for. What kind of things do they think are important? What are the traits um, about you that they enjoy? And these are usually people that you're really close with. Now, again, I know it's difficult. It's hard to ask other people, but that can give you an idea. And you will find if you can listen to yourself just a little bit while you're doing this. I know it's stressful. We might want to dissociate. I encourage you stay present. Notice how you respond and react. So if they say something about you and you find it flattering, we need to jot that down. If you find yourself not wanting to accept it, we need to jot that down. It's all very interesting. Or if you hear them say something and you're like, that is way off base. Like if they're talking about traits of other people, things they look for in others, 
you might find yourself agreeing and disagreeing without even having to think about it. Like you might have an automatic response and that's incredibly helpful. And last, I thought of one more. (laughs) They just keep coming. Fourth and finally, watch TV shows and films with people like key with people that you like, right? Like you probably have a favorite show, favorite movie, something you keep going back to. Why do you like that character? What is it about them that you find attractive or funny or enjoyable? You could look at your friends and family too, if that's more helpful. I find sometimes it's easier when it's like fictional characters, but take some time and consider, or maybe it's people like characters in books that you've been reading or listening to on Audible. Like what is it about those things, those people, those situations that you like? Because that'll, again, we're just doing some research. We're, we're learning. And it's kind of fun to get to know ourselves and what we like and don't like and why why those traits. You know, we can dig into that later, but hopefully that helps you get out of your head and not be so shut down and be open to kind of figuring this out, okay? And there was a comment that said, yes, this. I've been asked what makes me happy and what I like to do. I've always just done what everyone else, oh, what makes everyone else happy. So to stop and consider myself, Ugh, how do you even figure it out? I feel like I already answered that. So we're going to keep moving. I struggle with this too. This is the next comment. Sometimes when I'm trying to write down what traits I have, it feels like I'm describing someone else, even though I think that those qualities apply to me too. Give it time. It sometimes can take us a while to, to digest something and accept it as our own. Be patient with yourself and just keep doing that work. Okay. I end up feeling guilty. Okay. Yeah. Um, hold on, I lost my place. It says, write down those traits. It feels like I'm talking about someone else, even though I think that those qualities apply to me too. And when it comes to writing down or talking about what is important to me, I end up feeling guilty because I don't do those things when I'm struggling with depression. Or it again feels like I'm describing someone else. Why is that? And how do I accept these things for myself? Okay, that's a little bit different of a question. So when um, dealing with the guilt about you don't do those things when you're struggling with depression, not to make light of that, but that's why it's depression. Depression takes things from us. It makes it impossible to get out of bed, do what we need to do, enjoy the things we used to do. It can make it impossible for us to be interested in sex or relationships. We can feel hungry or full more than normal. We can struggle with sleep, right? It's a mental illness. I encourage you to think of this. Every time you find your brain going to this, I encourage you to argue back and say something to the effect of, well, I wouldn't shit talk myself like this or feel guilty like this if I was if I had the flu or if I was really sick with COVID. I don't do the same things when that's going on. So why am I applying this to my depression? I encourage you to argue back. Don't let this thought live rent free in your head. It's not helping you. It's only hindering you. Pay attention. Fight back. Yeah, we got this. And I think if you stop allowing that thought to have weight and to have value, because thoughts are just thoughts. And having them multiple times doesn't make them facts, okay? I know we often think that, oh, if I think this over and over, then it must be true. Bullshit. We have, what is the, um, there was a study, I forget, let's say like 20 years ago, that like 96% of the thoughts that we have every day we've had before. So we're having like very few new thoughts. So I think you can rest assured that your shit talking yourself about your depression, this guilt you're feeling isn't a new one. And so we don't want to have it tomorrow. We don't want to put it in that 96% or whatever. We want it to be gone. We want it to not be a thought of ours anymore, right? And so I think arguing back against those a little bit will help with you accepting these and help with you, help minimize that guilt that you're experiencing. Okay, I want to make sure I answer the rest of that. And how do I accept these things? It takes time. 
But I think that you're kind of fighting against yourself with that guilt and that shit talking. And so I encourage you, um, you can use bridge statements along with like comparing it to actual illness, like physical illness. I think we can use bridge statements, meaning let's say the thought is, you know, um, I'm not that great of a person. I, I don't think that's who I am. I don't know anything. I'm so stupid. I'm so lazy, blah, 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 right? We should talk ourselves, yada, yada, yada. We spiral out. Instead of letting that pick up steam, we're going to have to bridge statement it. So we're going to have to pick out each of those little things. Like, I'm so lazy. Um, I'm not that good of a person. I guess that's not really who I am. Maybe I'm not as nice as them, right? All that pick one. Those are all separate. And I want you to argue back with something that's not as negative. I don't mean positive. I mean, bridge statement. It's possible. It's possible Katie is right, maybe. It's possible that she's right and that I am not lazy or not as lazy as I thought. I know you're like, Katie, that's not even even that much better. It sounds silly, but shifting our thoughts a little bit out of that shitty place, out of that shit talking, put ourselves down place, just into a maybe I might be, it's possible that I'm not as lazy as I suspect. Just moving it a little bit feels different and it will and it can change your life. So do that work. I think that will allow you to slowly accept it. But again, it just takes time. These are new concepts, but we want to stop fighting against. It's like you're working to be, to get to know yourself and be more loving and supportive to yourself. And at the same time, fighting against it and being like, stupid, 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 right? And so we have to at least take that away so we can help that work that you're doing sink in. Now, there's a final um, comment on this said, yes, this exactly. I hope this question gets answered. As an add-on to similar exercises I've been asked to do is to write down five things I like about myself. Sounds easy to most, but I, but <laughs> I know, but it's so hard. I found this really challenging as if there's some sort of mental block when doing it, as I feel like the things that I write down are superficial and not true. Any advice? Again, going back to what I said at the beginning, because that is hard work. Okay. It's okay. I know it sounds easy, but it's hard, especially if we shit talk ourselves all the time. I think you can kind of apply some of the things that I've already said. That bridge statementing, it's going to be really important for you. Secondly, I really want you to take some time looking on TV or out at other people in your life and writing down the things you like about them. And I know you're like, but I'm supposed to do it about me. It helps. Just trust me. Don't knock it till you try it. Look out at other characters on TV or um, movies or shows. Look out at people in your life, friends, family, people who you appreciate and you love and you maybe admire. What do you admire about them? And that will help you as you get used to looking for these positives. When you go back to try to find them about yourself, it'll be helpful too. Okay? You got this. Hang in there. And also, if you want, like I said earlier, you can ask people in your life some of the things that they like about you. I know it makes you really uncomfortable and you don't want to do it, but they'll tell you some. And like I said, you'll have a visceral reaction about it. It could be interesting to, you know, dive into that and explore it a little bit, but that can help too. Okay. Let's move on to question number five. This question says, hi, Katie. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. It says, can you elaborate on how one might understand if they are filling their schedule to run from what's going on in their life versus keeping the calendar full as a way to move forward in life? Yes, I can talk about this. I am conflicted between being introverted and extroverted. Join the club. I sometimes enjoy being busy, but I worry about getting burnt out. 
Yep. But maybe I won't because I enjoy having a full schedule. I am dealing with the grief um, with grief for the passing of my eldest son last year. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. And I want to put myself out there so I don't isolate. I worry that I've been advised that I, oh, I worry and I've been advised that I am running. Can it be both running and now living? I hope this makes sense. Thank you for all that you do. Of course, that totally makes sense. And I feel you on a lot of those things. I struggle to not be running. I've talked about this way in the past, but for any of you who who are new, you might not know, I used to run as a teen as a way to cope with stress. I think I talked about it also when I was talking about like my own relationship with exercise and how like not healthy that was. And I think part of why I understand eating disorders is because I can remember what that was like. So anyways, I used to physically run when I felt overwhelmed. And I remember my therapist being like, it's interesting that you like mentally and physically run because I didn't like conflict either. This is a conversation for another time, right? Katie, bring it to your own therapy, Jesus Christ. So I feel you. And my thoughts and my answer is that the way to know and be honest, again, we have to be honest with ourselves. We're the only one that truly knows our experience. When we're running from our life and running from what's going on, and that's why our schedule is busy, we aren't taking any time to tap in. And I mean that in a real way. I mean, sitting in the quiet. Can you sit in a quiet room for like a half an hour? Can you put on some soft music and journal? I know not everybody loves journaling. I find it incredibly cathartic. I did it on the plane on my way back from Philadelphia and it was so helpful. I haven't been doing it as often. So Can you do that? Do you make time for that? Are you getting enough sleep and are you taking care of your basic needs? Those are just the simple ways to check in because running doesn't allow for that. The quiet means the thoughts come up and we fucking hate those thoughts and we've got to keep busy. Off we go again, a new task. When we're at home, are we buzzing around doing all sorts of random things? Or can we sit? Can we stretch? Can we be quiet? Can we check in with how we feel? Can we cry if we need to? Consider that. Be honest with yourself because I'm telling you, I don't do it all the time either. So I'm there right there with you. If we enjoy keeping a full calendar and has nothing to do with this running, we feel fulfilled. We feel joy. We also have time to tap in. Having a full calendar doesn't mean that our self-care and our basic needs get thrown to the side. It means we have time for that and the other stuff and it all brings us joy and it helps us feel better. So that's how I would tease that out. And again, only you know. You have to be honest with yourself. I think we all know. And I know we can't keep crying and crying and crying. Trust trust me, I've had my own fair share of grief and it's painful and it's difficult and it's exhausting. But if you don't make time for it, it will pull you down in a time that's really inconvenient. You know, we can't just run from it forever, Okay. Again, I'm so sorry for your loss, and I hope that that helped. Let's move on to question number six. This question says, hey, Katie, I have a question about negative self-talk. Let's get into it. I've noticed that most people talk to themselves in second person. For example, you're so stupid for making that mistake. I talk to myself in the first person. For example, I'm so stupid for making that mistake. Doesn't matter how you talk to yourself. Also, out of curiosity, does it mean anything if you use your own name when you talk to yourself? I thought this was so funny and interesting. 
because I say Katie, I say my name. I'm like, Katie, what are you thinking? I talk, that's how I should talk myself. Um, although maybe in my head, it might not be like that, but some it is sometimes. So when I read this immediately, I was like, I say my own name. I truly believe that it's just, it's a personal preference. I think it's just the way that you do it. And part of me also, when you asked this question, I got into like a deep thinking mode about it where I was like, I wonder if it has to do with how we heard it, if we ever did hear any put downs. Was it someone saying, Katie, why'd you do this? Or was it you do this all the time? I don't know. I was curious about that. Again, everyone is going to be different, but I find that everybody talks to themselves in a different way when it comes to negative self-talk. And there's no real, at least from what I could find. And I talked to, um, I talked to another colleague of mine actually about this because I was having a call with them about something else about vagus nerve stimulation. Stay tuned. But anyways, um, they didn't think there was a difference either. We, we both believed that it's just our preference when it comes to this. And I, I still have to fight in that. I do believe a little bit that when you say, um, you know, you're so stupid and putting down, I feel like that's more powerful or more because it, it's, I feel like we're like repeating an old pattern of, ab- of abuse from someone. And so I don't know if that's like re-traumatizing. That was my concern. Um, like using your name and saying you, I felt like could be more painful, but again, Negative self is negative self-talk. People say it in all sorts of ways. Like I said, I might even jump around between them. I don't believe there's any real reason or um, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how you talk to yourself negatively. The goal is just to not do it as much and to use some bridge statements and and pull ourselves out. Okay? I hope those are just my thoughts. I'm just, as I, as I got this question, I looked into PubMed and Google Scholar and didn't really find anything other than like the, the power, the power of positive self-talk and how negative self-talk is helpful. Asked a colleague and that's what we came up with. If you have new thoughts or different um, beliefs around it, I'd love to hear those in the comments. Let's move on to question number seven. This question says, why does mental illness make concentration so hard? I've been working with a trauma therapist and attempting to be more present only makes me realize how hard it is to pay attention. When people talk, I can hear them and can follow conversations enough and make replies, but the retention, it's not there. Later on, I can't recall the conversation or what has been talked about. Why does this happen? And how do you make it better? Realizing this only makes me much more frustrated because now I realize how much of how much my brain just doesn't seem to function like I want to. This is a great question and something that I feel like we probably haven't talked about very much other than to say that a lot of mental illnesses do cause concentration difficulties. And overall, the reason that this happens is because a mental illness affects our brain and our brain is responsible for a lot of things. And when our brain is busy doing something else or is affected so much that it can't the like it's not firing the same the the signals aren't being received the same it's like slowed down or there's not enough of a transporter to get that to it right because it's an illness in our brain i know that that sounds very severe and very intense but it's just the truth it's like we if we've caught a common cold you wouldn't be like oh my god you have a cold that means like your respiratory system is affected and also, you know, the mucous membranes in your nose. And you could go on and on about how it's affecting your system. And you could be like, wow, that's a lot. But it's still a common cold and we can get through it. Just like mental illnesses, we can understand them, we can better manage them, we can treat them. So when we have an illness of the brain, it affects our brain's functionality. 
things that used to be rewarding, if we're talking about depression, aren't rewarding anymore. That area in our brain we know through research does not light up the same. Also, if we have trauma in our past, we know our limbic system, which houses our amygdala and runs through our brain, is always lit up. Meaning our prefrontal cortex or organized thought, oh, that's more difficult to come by, right? So there are things that are going to happen in our brain when we suffer from a mental illness that makes concentration incredibly difficult. And yes, it's frustrating. And I wish I had a quick answer on like, how can I get my concentration back? The truth is, find a treatment that works for you. That could be, you know, a different style of therapy or continuing in our therapy process. Tell your therapist you struggle with this. It could be helpful. I had a patient forever that would record our sessions on her phone or take notes just like I was taking notes, right? We can do things like that. That could help us recall. I know it sucks in public with friends, but it's also okay to say, and this, this you could change the excuse from time to time. You could say, I'm sorry, I'm super tired today. What What is it you were saying? We can ask people to repeat. As long as we we apologize, we own it, and we, and we can say, I'm really interested in what you have to say. Do you mind repeating that? That's okay. No one's going to be offended. Or I didn't catch that last thing. Could you say that again? Telling someone we're interested in what they're saying and we want to understand more, and we, we could you repeat that? That's That's not a bad thing. And that will ensure that we're able to follow. So overall, that's why mental illnesses can make concentration so difficult. And when it comes to ADHD and, and other things like that, where like attention is part of it, those are more specific, right? Uh, that would mean that we don't have enough dopamine or dopamine transporters. So things aren't as rewarding, again, like that reward center. So therefore we go searching for things that are more entertaining. So if something is kind of boring or is old news to us, we're always looking for something to stimulate that. And so there can be a lot of different reasons that concentration is difficult. But when it comes to like, depression, anxiety, what I was talking about, that's really why. I find a lot of my patients um, who have eating disorders, the concentration is difficult because either we're malnourished or we're focusing all of our thoughts and energy on procurement of food, avoidance of food, thinking about, it's just thoughts and feelings about food. Um, And like I said, with hypervigilance and PTSD, we can be always searching in our environment because our limbic system's really lit up, overactive. We're looking for a threat all the time, make make it hard for us to engage in conversation thoughtfully. Not to mention that prefrontal cortex is offline. So that's kind of why it happens. And making it better is really just through treating the mental illness that's affecting us. Okay? Now, there was a comment on this that said, this, I find myself realizing that I'm on autopilot during a conversation. It's very odd, unnerving, a very odd, unnerving experience to be midway through a topic only to snap back into it or having a conversation and later not being able to recall what was said. It's sort of like Charlie Brown when adults talk. How do I fix this? This comment makes me think it's dissociation. When you said you're like on autopilot, like boop, and then you snap back. That sounds like dissociation to me. And so a way to fix it would be to have some kind of way to bring yourself back, like looking around the room for things that start with A, B, C, colors, you know, county colors, how many things are blue, brown, green. Um, We could have a fidget toy in our pocket. We could, um, if you don't struggle with self-injury and this isn't triggering, you can have a little rubber band on your wrist, like a hair tie or rubber band. You can snap it a little bit. Sometimes that can bring us back. 
We can remove ourselves for a second and say, would you excuse me? I just need to use the restroom really quick. We go, we put our hands under cold water. Maybe we put it on our neck or splash water in our faces. Those can be some things that we can do because I believe what's happening here isn't so much of the concentration difficulty. I think it's more dissociation, but I could be wrong. And then all in all, if we work, if we work through our trauma or whatever is maxing out our nervous system, could be chronic stress and things like that. If we work through that in therapy, the urge to dissociate will go away, okay? Another person in the final question on this says, yes, this happens to me. If someone is talking to me, sometimes I'm looking at them, but I'm not retaining anything. So I ask them to repeat themselves. But my problem is I can't remember conversations or events that occurred. I feel like I'm paying attention, but I have a horrible memory. Could this be due to high stress? I don't have any head injuries. I'm just curious. Oh, there's another one after this. Sorry. So that's that. And we have one more question. Could be high stress that's causing dissociation. If we struggle with um, social phobia or social anxiety, being out in public can cause our brain to pull the ripcord because it's too overwhelming and we don't want to have a panic attack. So that could be why. Like I said, it could be the dissociation could be um, caused by a lot of different things, or it could be because our brain is sick because we have a mental illness and it's like impossible for us to like retain that. And the lack of memory I don't know. You, those of you with depression would have to tell me. Only my patients who are in, deep in a depressive episode will tell me that they don't have memories of it. And I find it's because those deep, dark thoughts that we have sometimes when we're depressed can be almost traumatizing in and of themselves. But I find overall depression doesn't affect our memory as much as concentration, which I know you're like, Katie, what's the difference? Concentration is when we're able to like focus on something for a period of time. Memory is, can I recall what was said? And so I feel like those are just different. And it could be, to answer this person's question, it could be high stress causing dissociation. Um, but you'd have to tell me, you know, what you're experiencing. And if you start to feel overwhelmed, is that when it happens? Like we'd have to start tracking this a little bit, journaling about it, keeping track of it so that then we can see the patterns and what's triggering it. Okay. Now, another person said, a similar thing happens for me. I've been starting to do some inner child work and talking about my emotional neglect and abuse with my therapist, and I cannot concentrate on anything. It's like I'm either thinking about hundreds of things at once and I can't get my thoughts together, or I'm so focused on trying to calm down when the stuff from therapy comes up that I can't focus on anything around me. Hmm. I got just started college and this is becoming a big problem for me because it's hard to pay attention in lectures and I can't focus long enough to get much progress done on my homework. How can I let myself think about and process everything going on in therapy while also staying caught up in my classes? Let your therapist know this is happening. Doing inner child work and emotional neglect and abuse, doing that trauma work is fucking hard. And it takes, it can take so much out of us that then we're not able to function in other parts of our life. It's kind of part of the reason why we say like sometimes it gets worse before it gets better. Let your therapist know about this. And we can kind of do a couple of things. Number one, your therapist could give you more like one session on that's really difficult and another session that's not to help you process could give you more time at the end of your session to kind of unwind and process what you're doing. So those are kind of the therapeutic components that we could do, or we could add in an extra session if that's something that's available to you. Or on the whole like flip side of school, maybe because we're doing this intensive work, we reduce our class load a little bit by like one class so that we don't feel so overwhelmed. Um, I've had patients take less during their school year and just take it through the summer so that they're still able to graduate in time, but not feel so overwhelmed. And so those are kind of the things that you could, you know, um, do. And then, oh, also you could have your therapist 
potentially, if you think you need more time for things or need more assistance, they can write to the university and get you some accommodations if you need that. Like more time on tests, someone to take notes for you in class, like note assistance. My friend Kim used to do that. And that's how she got paid in school was by being a note taker. So there's a lot of different ways that we can navigate this to get you the support that you need. Okay. Moving on to question number eight. This question says, hi, Katie, I'm afraid I might be the weirdest person ever. I've tried to Google this, but I can't find anyone else experiencing the same thing. And it's so shameful. Please, please help me explain this. The problem is I get wet down there when I have a lot of anxiety, but I don't feel sexually aroused at all. I only notice it afterwards. It often happens during anxiety attacks when I have severe anxiety, cry, and hyperventilate. I've been wondering if it has to do with my breathing. It might. We'll talk about this. I've noticed that hyperventilating is a bit like my breathing right before or during an orgasm, quick and short breaths. But I have no sexual thoughts at all during these anxiety attacks. But could rapid breathing be enough to fool my body into thinking that something else is going on? It also happens during my therapy sessions. I get easily overwhelmed by anything and I have severe anxiety most of the time during my sessions. But I'm more in a free state and have a tough time showing how much anxiety I have. So it can be cause it can be because of rapid it can't be because of rapid breathing here. Our conversations are not about sex at all, and I don't feel sexually aroused during my therapy sessions. I don't notice anything until I go to the bathroom and then I realize that I well my body's prepared itself quite a lot. This happens every time, but the more anxiety I have during the session, the worse it gets. Help. This is so terribly embarrassing. What is wrong with me? Why is this happening? And P.S., I'm sorry if I used any inappropriate words if it or if it doesn't make sense. English isn't my first language. Your English is impeccable. And no, you did not use any inappropriate words. A sexual arousal is interesting because it can happen for a lot of reasons. You have to remember that sexual arousal isn't just a physical touch, I'm in the mood type of thing. It's like it can actually just be a a physical response, right? Like our body can prepare itself for like, for instance, an example would be, I've had a lot of patients over the years who will get aroused during sexual abuse. And they'll be like, but I clearly enjoyed it. I'm like, no, that's a physiological response. We don't have control over that, right? That's something that's happening whether or not we want it to. Now, yes, there is the mental um the mental component of it too, where we have to, we have, we can think about sex or be in the mood for sex, but that's not what we're talking about here. This is a physiological response. Now, I'm going to share a very strange story with you because you're not alone. I had a patient eons ago who, when she felt really upset in her stomach, wanted to throw up, diarrhea, things like that, she would have orgasms. And went to a neurologist, no traumatic brain injury that can cause it. Just so you know, if you have any concussions and traumatic brain injury that can sometimes affect it or tumors can be pressing on certain things and that can cause things like this. But because yours is so acutely connected to your anxiety, I'm wondering about the way that that arouses your body. And I'm using the term arousal because it, that you just think of what that means. Arousal means to like ignite. And I'm not looking up like the definition exactly, but it's to get our system going, right? And your body's getting so cued up that you're having this physiological response. Now, I wish I had like a short way to to help you or a way to stop this. It's essentially, I believe, and again, I would want you to get checked out, make sure you know there's no neurological reasons. We'd need to make sure we don't, I don't, you'd know if you had a traumatic brain injury, 
but it might be worth getting checked out. But because it's so acutely connected to your anxiety, I don't think that's it. I think it's when your body gets aroused, it gets stimulated, your nervous system is firing incredibly intensely that it's causing this to occur. Now, I know that that's like not a great answer, but I I too, just like you said, you've Googled and looked. I looked in PubMed. I looked in Google Scholar. I asked around. Uh, my friend was talking about vagus nerve, and that's where I actually, we talked about it a little bit, and they were talking about how connected our body is and how, like, even if you look up what the vagus nerve is included in or connected with, you'll see just how many things are inextricably linked within our nervous system. And so when your nervous system gets queued up, unfortunately, this is a response that you're having. Now, the the silver lining to this would be that as you are better able to ground yourself and soothe and manage your anxiety, I believe this will go away. And I would love for you to keep me, you know, up to date and let me know if that occurs. Like if you're able to if medication is something you're considering, because um, that can help with anxiety and also can sometimes take away sexual desire, which might inadvertently stop this, that could be some way. But also, like I said, coping skills and finding better ways to manage your anxiety, it will go down. I just believe that your nervous system is getting so intensely queued up, you're having that physiological response, even though, like you said, nothing sexual is happening. You have no thoughts. There's no conversation. It's it's a, a bodily response in the same way that I would talk about like sometimes when we get really stressed, we can all of a sudden have to poop or puke. We can have like that lizard brain kind of response. If you want to read about lizard brain, you could understand maybe a little bit about that too. But it's that the fact that our body's connected and when you get, you're getting all amped up, it's it's causing other things to happen as well. Final question, question number nine says, Katie, why can't I cry? I often tear up about things not closely related to me, like world events or historical events. But when it comes to the things that I feel are close to me, I have nothing. I know that I have sadness about some of the more embedded struggles in my life. I just can't feel them enough to cry about them. That's the key right there. It frustrates me when I hear others say they cry and feel better. I never feel like I get the cathartic opportunity to feel better. You're not alone. This I should probably do a whole video about why we can't cry because there's there's a few reasons, but the main is that disconnection. What you said right there, it frustrates, or no, sorry, you said, um, I know that I have sadness about some embedded struggles, right? But I can't feel them enough to cry about them. That's why you can't. You can't feel them. You're disconnected. And this is why I believe working on one of two things. Number one, somatic work, where we're in the shower, we run water over our bodies. I want you to be very mindful. I feel it on my shoulder, my arm, my forearm, my hand, right? Going down your body. I want you to, if you can do stretching, where do you feel the stretch? I want you to start tapping back into your body. I know it sounds weird, even hunger fullness. How hungry are you? How full? Are you? How thirsty are you? We need to start that work. Yoga can be helpful too because everything's very slow. Hatha yoga is a personal favorite of mine. I would encourage you to maybe look into that. Even putting lotion on or even just touching our body, it depends on how triggering this stuff is for you, but I'm just giving you a bunch of examples. Somatic experiencing can be incredibly helpful because that disconnect is what's preventing you from feeling things enough to cry. And we can attack it through somatic uh, work. Another way, doing some feelings work 
Cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT is incredibly helpful. And that means that we can use a feelings wheel or feelings charts and lists to try to help us identify, start out with one every day for like a week. Once we get the, in the rhythm of that, it might take you two weeks to get in the rhythm. Try coming up with two every day, two things that we feel, two feelings you experience. And then we can move up to three. Oops, I bumped my microphone, sorry. And move up, um, you know, maximum I'd say do like five or six, but don't feel the need to continue growing your feelings list. And then we can go into, and this is tying it back to the somatic, where do we experience those feelings in our body? Or, or how would we describe that feeling to someone who's never felt it before? Those can be ways for us to tap back in because it's not that you can't cry. It's that you're so disconnected that probably when you feel an intense emotion, you without realizing it either could dissociate or your body, you your brain is like, absolutely not. This isn't comfortable. I don't like it. I don't, it's un- I don't want to experience this. Shut it down. And that disconnection, that stuffing is why you can't feel it enough to cry. And that's why you tear up because it, it happens to you. You have this emotional response. And by that causing you to tear up, your, your brain and body are like, Foop, no, and it shoves it down and we cut it off. And so we have to just slowly reconnect those things. And I know it can be tedious and I know it can feel weird and uncomfortable, but just know that that discomfort that you feel while doing this means it's working. So stick with it because we have to like relearn or like, you know, slowly reconnecting our brains to our bodies. And it's, it's, it's hard. Like I said, you're not alone. This is incredibly common, but through that practice, it can and will get better. Thank you all so much for listening. Please share this podcast. Please leave your reviews. That's all really, really helpful. Um, Thank you for sending in all of your amazing questions. You guys are just the best. I can't wait to see you next week. Have a wonderful weekend and take care of yourselves. Bye.